0: How were the Taliban able to once again seize power in Afghanistan? How does the US withdrawal How does the US withdrawal and collapse of the Afghan government compare with the 1989 Soviet exit and its aftermath? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute interview program on current events, policy questions and new ideas. I'm Muin Rabbani and for this episode we're delighted to be speaking with former United Nations Under Secretary General Benon Sevan. Benon Sevan joined the United Nations Secretariat in 1965. Over the next four decades, he held numerous positions at UN headquarters and around the world, and carried out a variety of special political missions. From 1988 to 1992, he was posted in Afghanistan and Pakistan as the personal representative of the UN Secretary General and charged with monitoring the Soviet withdrawal, the implementation of the Geneva Accords on Afghanistan, as well as management of UN humanitarian programs. In 1992, he was appointed special envoy of the secretary general for issues related to missing persons in the Middle East. From 1997 to 2004, he served as executive director with the rank of undersecretary general of the UN Iraq program, Benon Sivan, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to Connections.
1: Well, Muin, you don't mind if I call you with, with you first, by all time?
0: means, please do. Okay. I, I'd like to start by asking you to describe your involvement with Afghanistan during the late 1980s and 1990s, and to give a sense of what it was like to personally experience the momentous events of that period.
1: Well. I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk with you and I'm sure you as many as other people are following the ongoing tragic developments in Afghanistan now. My heart really breaks down because after working with Afghans so closely, almost day and night, I came to identify myself with Afghans and the suffering which they've been going through. Afghanistan has been called as graveyard of empires. Yes, definitely from the time of Alexander the Great. At the same time, however, while people talk about non-Afghans being killed, people they don't talk about the millions of Afghans in the graveyards or with no graves at all in Afghanistan today. This is the tragedy. Afghanistan unfortunately has been used As the playing ground of foreign powers pursuing their interests through proxy wars carried out in Afghanistan, using the Afghan people often as mercenaries against their enemies. My involvement in Afghanistan began in April 1988 with the signing of the Geneva Accords between the representatives of governments of Pakistan and Afghanistan, which signed three bilateral agreements intended to end the war in Afghanistan, with an additional declaration on international guarantees, which was signed by the United States and the Soviet Union as state's guarantors. The ones who signed on behalf of uh, the United States and the Soviet Union were, of course, George Shultz, the, st- the Secretary of State, and Soviet Foreign Minister Dvart Nazi. Unfortunately, and these documents collectively have been hailed as the key to the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. And in all fairness to the Soviets, within the nine months allocated for their departure, they fully complied with the dates, starting their evacuation, May 15, 1988, ending 15, February
0: 1989. That was when the final uh, Soviet troops uh, withdrew across the border.
1: And I still remember very well having lunch with the then Soviet ambassador, Ambassador Yuli Voronsov. I was having lunch in Kabul at the Soviet embassy garden outside his residence. He said, Benoni said, Did you see the number of people outside the embassy? I said, yes, there were almost 100 journalists, TV cameras, you name it. He said, I'm sorry, I will not, I will disappoint them very much, he said, because they all expect me to fly out of the Soviet embassy's roof by helicopter. And he did not fly out of the embassy's rooftop like Americans did in Vietnam. And look at the mess today, What's happening in Afghanistan at the Kabul airport? It's horrible. What's happening? People hanging on the planes which are taking off. The number of people going on. The total chaos, chaotic arrangements or non-arrangements for evacuation of these people. I mean, they should have started reviewing the visa applications of these people who work for them long before announcing the departure date. Now. We have all these people stuck, not only in Kabul, and there are people outside Kabul who work for the Americans in other Western countries who are stuck there, they cannot even move out. The total disaster. It breaks my heart to see, it, to witness what's going on. And then speaking about Geneva Accords, although Pakistan signed, they failed to comply with the commitments made in the Geneva Accords. And supported by the United States with the provision of they provided military supplies and financial support of Saudi Arabia. They continued to arm the Mujahideen leaders who were based in Pakistan and their preference was to give the highest amount of money. And the volumes and volumes of armaments to the extremist. Mujahideen leaders with and the, the purpose eyes. of overthrowing
0: uh, the government that remained after the soviets left
1: and the, and the blue-eyed boy at the time was hekmatyar who's still around
0: gulbuddin hekmatyar who's now a member i believe of the reconciliation commission yes together yes. with uh, former president uh, karzai and uh,
1: abdullah abdullah yes he's a survivor and then In a letter dated 12 September, 1991, following the Geneva Accords, the letter addressed to Secretary General Perez de Coyar, the Foreign Secretary of the United States informed Secretary General that the U.S. and the Soviet governments will be announcing that day an agreement to discontinue their weapons, deliveries to all Afghan sites, effective 1 January, 1992. And that he informed the Secretary General also, that he had sent messages to the governments of Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, urging that they fully support this cutoff, stressing that an end to the external military supply will give give the strongest possible boost to the political process. He also praised the efforts of the United Nations, and therefore to bring peace to Afghanistan, and reiterating their full support. Yes, the letter speaks about food support, but when the chips are done and look what happened, at the end of the day, they sided with Pakistan, which utilized support received from the United States and the Saudi money. They continued their involvement in, in Afghanistan, contrary to the commitments they had made in signing the agreement with the government of Afghanistan under the Geneva Accords.
0: So sorry, just to interrupt, but so there was supposed to be an international arms embargo yes. beginning in January of 1992. Yes. But I, the, believe, I believe the Soviets did stop uh, supplying the Najibullah government.
1: The Soviets the fully complied with the Geneva Accords. And in fact, it made them unpopular with Najibullah at the time. He was worried more from the Soviets on the other sides. At the same time also, when the Geneva Accords were signed and the Soviets withdrew, everybody said Najibullah will not even last one day. He lasted more than three years. And here we have Ashraf Ghani who flew away, ran away from Afghanistan in less than a month. In fact, what happened was, of course, the moment the Americans decided to have their bilateral talks with the Taliban, abandoned Ashraf Ghani and his government. And that emboldened the Taliban, which felt that they had already won the war. Therefore, there was no need for them to negotiate concretely and to to implement what they may or may not have agreed upon. The trouble is you know that uh, let me talk about what happened after the withdrawal of Soviet troops. Yeah, please. Briefly. I like to say one thing. As I always said, in fact, one of my first cables I sent in from Afghanistan was to say, I see the light, but not the tunnel. And the tunnel must be dug by the Afghans themselves. Mm-hmm. We can only help them, provide them the, the material supplies for them to dig the tunnel, but unless the tunnel is that, by the Afghans themselves, there is no way we can achieve the op- objective of reaching peace or the light at the end of the tunnel. I always looked at my role and that of the UN, the role of the yeast in making bread. When the bread is cooked and baked, people eat the bread, they admire the taste of the bread or the texture of the bread. They praise the they praise the baker, but nobody talks about the yeast, and that's the way I want our role at the UN of the UN to be in Afghanistan, and that's the way I worked in Afghanistan. Afghans had to bre- to bake the bread, because unless they were the bakers, there was no way peace could be achieved in Afghanistan.
0: And I think at that time you did mediate um, in 1992 an agreement between the Najibullah government, and um, some of the Mujahideen factions.
1: I worked days and nights, thousands of hours, flying between Kabul and Peshawar, Islamabad, Saudi Arabia, Moscow, Washington, meeting with Afghan leaders, meeting with the government representatives of Afghanistan, meeting the commanders, individuals, meeting the king, the ex-king, Zahir Shah in, in Rome, Rome. I tried to encourage them to sit down and talk together, to come to peace. I was just assisting, facilitating the talks, because unfortunately, a number of them, they refused to talk to each other. So that's why I had to carry on this proxy talks, non-stop. And towards the end, we came with an agreement, which was an Afghan agreement. All sides had agreed, and all sides agreed, and they were supported by at least that's what they told me, Pakistan, United States, Moscow, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and everybody said they were in agreement. The agreement was we will have an interim government to which government in in Afghanistan would transfer power. And we had asked for all the Mujahideen groups to submit the list of names as candidates to become members of the interim government. I received hundreds of names from all the groups, which I shared with all the other groups. Again, it was for the Afghans themselves to decide who will be the members of this group of interim government. I never forget, it was mid-April, Nawaz Sharif, the then prime minister, invited all the Mujahideen leaders to his in residence. Pakistan. In Pakistan. In Pakistan, to his residence, to Islamabad. And We told them, look, we have all these names, we have them available to you. Sit down now, decide the members of the interim government, which will take over power from Kabul. And the moment you decide, I will fly them to Kabul the same day. So we left them alone. We went back to the reception room of Nawaz Sharif. I told him, Mr. Prime Minister, I have my doubts these people will never agree waited one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. Then we went back to them. Again, there was no agreement. And then suddenly, Hamid Karzai, who was then assistant to Mujahideen, he said, how about Mujahideen members in the interim government? He asked me. I said, I don't think there'll be a problem because I discussed this option with Najibullah. He said, there is no problem. I said, okay, go ahead. From interim government. Let us know the members, and we'll fly them tonight, today to Kabul. So we left them alone again. And we went back to the reception room of Nawaz Sharif, and I said they will never agree really to speak. One hour, two hours. It was eight o'clock, nine o'clock, ten o'clock at night. In the meantime, I was getting messages from my colleagues in Kabul saying, "Where are you? What's happening?" Because Najibullah wants to to start going to the airport.
0: Because, sorry, part of the agreement was that um, Najibullah, who was then president of Afghanistan, would resign and go into exile. Yes.
1: I will come back to Najibullah. Mm -hmm. And then, in all fairness, and I admire Najibullah, who was prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice. He was prepared to resign in favor of peace of Afghanistan and for his people. He didn't want to be the person to be accused of the failure of a peace agreement to bring peace to Afghanistan. Because at the time, like now, they were talking, Taliban were talking about Ashraf Ghani to resign. They were saying that unless Najibullah leaves, there can be no peace. Therefore, Najibullah decided, after discussing with all his colleagues, and so-called friends in his government, and supporters in the field. And they they all agreed that he will resign. They all agreed also to support the agreement reached among the Afghans, supported by the UN, of an interim government. And I warned Najibullah that the moment he announces that he's prepared to resign. His friends will turn against him. Which against is him. what happened. This is what happened. Mm. So, it was by 11 o'clock. I'm still at Nawaz Sharif's residence. I said, I will fly to Kabul. He was literally and his colleagues were begging me not to fly. He is dangerous because nobody flew. Mm. But Kabul at night, I said, I promised I'm prepared to give up my life to fulfill my obligation and the promise I made. So I left 11 o'clock, his residence, went home, took a shower, went to the airport, we flew to Kabul at night, we landed with no lights. After we arrived, somehow I felt like dead fish, something, there's something wrong, I felt, you know, in the air. I came down from the plane, there were two guards at the airport, because the airport was deserted, they came to say hello and then they walked away. Then suddenly somebody on a bicycle, like a clown, came around and went around the, the plane with his bicycle without responding to my greetings and left. And I knew right away what happened. It was a Joe Shani from the north, from Uzbek. Those tombs group. And just as the part, general uh, Abdel Rashid just told. Yes. Mm-hmm. Just as he left, I got surrounded. The plane got surrounded with about 300 Joe Shannis with arms, and I knew what happened. They had taken the airport, nobody knew, and nobody had told me the airport was taken. And Then I sent a message to my colleagues, I said, where are you? They said, they are on their way to the airport, escorting Najibula. Mm-hmm. and then halfway through this, they sent another message, they said, they were stopped on their way to the airport. They were not being allowed to go to the airport or to go back to the office. Sorry, just to
0: interrupt you, so they prevented um, Najibullah from fulfilling his agreement to go into exile.
1: Yeah, they stopped him from coming to the airport. And then they allowed them to go back to the office. So Najibullah went with them back. And then Najibullah said, no, he wants to go to the office. He went office. And they arrived at the office at the gates. My colleagues send me a message saying that Najibullah wants to go into the office, what do you say? I said, he's still the president, you allow him inside. So Najibullah went to our office. And then he sent me a message that he's sending his uh, chief of security to help me negotiate to get out of the situation that I was forced into. His security chief never showed up. The next morning was announced that he he had committed suicide. No, he was killed. And then... Also, he sent to me, he's sending General Azami to the airport to help me out of the situation. Azami showed up at the airport, and I could feel he had betrayed Najibullah already. Finally, it was agreed that the plane can go back to Islamabad because I told him I'm staying in Kabul. Sorry,
0: but why why did they prevent Najibullah from boarding the plane? Was it an assassination attempt or
1: well, I something? don't know. Mm. To say, Maybe some people knew what was going to happen because if they had come, if we had flown there, they would have blown up the plane. I have no doubt about it. Mm. The thing is that, so, as I mean, organized, so therefore they agreed that the plane can leave back to Pakistan. And just as I told the captain, he started the engine. I said, stop it. He didn't hear me. So I jumped into an open jeep, I drove it myself and blocked the runway to make him stop Because I want to make sure the runway is clear. Nobody's going to hit the plane. So finally, was everything clear? The plane went off. And I went back to the office, and I met Najibullah there.
0: At the UN office?
1: Office. My office. office. And uh, I said, I'm very sorry what happened. And uh, he said, look, he was prepared to resign, as he called it, in support of the UN plan because I didn't want to be the obstacle for peace. I'm prepared to sacrifice myself. And he had this letter of resignation, which he had drafted, and I helped him in the drafting. It was his decision. I didn't force him to resign, although I warned him that the moment he announces that he's prepared to resign, his friends will turn against him, which they did. In fact, he announced. In my presence at the press conference, it was prepared to resign and turn over power to the interim government. In fine, I sent messages to all the embassies in Kabul asking the ambassadors and the Shahjeda Affairs to, to see me at my office seven o'clock in the morning because there was a kufu in the meantime. They all came there, we were talking and the Pakistani Shahjeda Affairs said, we are prepared to offer Najibullah is safe haven to take him safely out of Afghanistan to Pakistan. Najibullah said, you have been trying to kill me for so long. You think I will accept your, honor, your offer? I prefer to die here in this office in favor of the UN plan. No way. Anyway, that morning I took his letter and met with members of his cabinet, Najibullah's cabinet, and uh, which was being chaired by the well-known Afghan poet, Suleiman Laik. Present was also the then foreign minister, Mr. Wakil, who was one of the first ones to betray Najibullah. So Mr. Suleiman Laik tells me, Mr. Sevan, you hand over this crook, he referred to Najibullah as crook, and we decide whether he goes or he stays here. I look at his face, I said to him, Mr. Like, when is the last time you look into the mirror? He asked, when is the last time you look into the mirror? Mr. Like? I said, you just found out tonight that Mr. Najibullah was a crook? Two weeks ago, I said, were on television in Afghanistan, claiming that you consider Najibullah as your spiritual son. Aren't you ashamed, I said, to say he's a cook, the man is prepared to sacrifice himself for the citizens of his country, unlike you people who are prepared to sell yourselves? I said, you know where he is, in my office. And if you come to take him, I want you to know one thing. I said you have to shoot me first. I got up and left office. They betrayed. Me. And,
0: of and and Najibullah then I believe remained as basically was given asylum by the UN. Yes, he and, stayed
1: there almost two years. Yeah, until
0: 1996.
1: Yes, and Abbas yeah. there. So I left in September Afghanistan. Of ninety two. And I very much regret to say that the UN failed. Making the necessary efforts to try to get him out. I'm sorry to say, mm-hmm. they failed. Yeah. And then, so, of course, and then of course, the infighting which took place in Kabul, where more than seventy thousand people were killed. Sorry, because an
0: interim government was never established, if I'm not mistaken.
1: right away. Mm-hmm. And then, what happened was. That uh, there was a big infighting going on with Mr. Himatiar blasting missiles, rockets into Kabul, where more than seventy thousand people were killed over after, the
0: course of the next uh, four years.
1: No, no, for two months. Yeah, yeah. And then after two months, I remember Secretary General Boutros arrived in Islamabad on an official visit. I went to meet him at the airport, and went with him to the hotel, we checked in, and just as I was sitting with him at his reception room, I had a call from the Foreign Secretary of Pakistan saying, Mr. Sevan, you should come to the airport right away. We have to fly to Peshawar because there's an agreement among Afghan Mujahideen leaders to form an interim government. So I asked the Secretary I said, go. So I left him. I went, I joined him on the plane. We went to Peshawar it was all pre-cooked already, you know. Mm. The stand, where they came up with an agreement. For two months, Mujahideen was going to be the president, to be succeeded by Rabani for four months. Mm. And they flew them to Kabul. As you well know, Mujahideen stayed for two months, succeeded by Rabani. He then refused to leave after four months. And the whole fighting started again and again and again and again. Then the Taliban took over, you know. Now, the question, speaking about Taliban, what I'd like to say about the origins of the Taliban. I mean, if you want to interrupt me, you can. Please. I I just,
0: before you do, I want to say, um, just to conclude this story, um, Najibullah remained at the UN office until 96, and then... He was captured uh,
1: by the... And then... He was tortured and killed, unfortunately, along with his brother, I believe. Yes, yes.
0: So, um, you know, on if if we now let's say fast forward um, uh, for a few decades. Um, today, you're following developments in Afghanistan from both a physical and professional distance. Nevertheless, I'd be very interested because you have been following developments closely. I'd be very interested to know how you would compare and contrast uh, the Soviet withdrawal with um, the U.S. NATO withdrawal during um, uh, during the past week, and also on on the issue of the Taliban, how you would compare their 1996 seizure of power with um, uh, their control, their establishing of control over Afghanistan this month.
1: Well. There can be no comparison with the manner the Soviets withdrew and the way the Americans and the NATO is withdrawing now. Mm. Now is a total chaos. Soviets withdrew within nine months as agreed at the Geneva in April 1988. They withdrew within the nine months agreed upon with no problems. It was an orderly withdrawal. Orderly withdrawal. There was an orderly government in place and continued in in place for three years before Najibullah decided to resign in favor of the Afghan plan for an interim government. At the same time, in the meantime, Pakistan support financially from Saudi Arabia and the Americans, because Pakistanis were very good in exploiting the Americans. And they make fortune out of it. And the ISI,
0: the Pakistani intelligence service,
1: they were the main mechanism through which all the aid to Mujahideen groups was delivered, both arms and ammunition and money. And they always supported the most extremist elements of the Mujahideen groups. And the best one for them was Gulbuddin
0: Hakmatyar. No.
1: It was the blue-eyed boy. And I and said, I used to warn the Americans, all the Western countries, mm-hmm. including Pakistan, the Saudis, others at the highest levels. I said, please stop supporting extremist groups because you're going to regret it. Because one day they will come back, they will hunt you. I never forget the American ambassador and Pakistan tell me, well, Mr. Salam, we know, but they're very good in killing the the Russians. I said, tomorrow it's going to be you and your own soldiers, and your own Americans. And as they say, the chicken came back home to roost. I I
0: just like to uh, ask you on this, because some people say that the reason that the assistance was given to the most uh, radical elements among the Mujahideen was because they were the most effective fighters. Others say that actually, it was to ensure that no political agreement would be reached, and and that that's why
1: they were being supported. Depends who you talk to. There was what are two, but there's something I like to talk about. The Taliban. Please, Taliban of course means student. Mm-hmm. Who were these Taliban students? As you know, during the Soviets, there were more than three and a half million. Afghan refugees in refugee camps in Pakistan. There were equal number of refugees in Iran, which nobody talked about. For refugees in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, most of them were women and children, because the men had stayed behind, they were fighting, etc. And with the financial support of Saudis, they established these madrasas, the religious schools, where all these children were going there getting their religious education, and in fact, brainwashed with Saudi Wahhabis. These are the kids who were students. These are the kids who were recruited into the Mujahideen ranks to fight. They were fanatics in terms of religion. They really believed what they were doing. And as I always used to say, the Western countries, You have to understand the mentality, the psychologist people. Threatening them with military action is not a threat to them. They are prepared to die. Like today you have these people who are prepared to put a belt around their waist, not a designer belt, but a belt full of bombs and prepared to blow themselves up. There is no way you can threaten them with death. They are all looking to become Martyrs, shahids, as they call them. So, therefore, all these mujahideen were provided with stingers. And then, what happened to stingers? They were turned against Americans afterwards. And they were also sold by the mujahideen leaders. And now, you look at what's happening now in Afghanistan. This army, they have trained about 300,000, fully armed. abandoned the arms they're running away the other day more than 20 planes plus helicopters full of afghan army people they ran away to uzbekistan they are giving up without fighting they spent more than two trillion dollars a lot of people make millions out of it less than three percent of this amount from what i read has gone as assistance to average Afghan people. Look at these poor people. Millions displaced. So many of them dead. So many injured, maimed. I remember seeing all these poor kids during the fighting when I was there. Maimed by all these butterfly mines, which the soldiers used to drop in Afghanistan from air. They were like toys very colorful and the children run to pick them up. They will get bang, losing arms or legs or dying, you know. A place like Afghanistan where it's so difficult to have a, to make a living, to live a normal life, what can a child with no arms or legs expect to, what kind of a life he can expect?
0: Well, um, on on this subject, if, if I could just turn a little bit to, to that aspect. Um, Uh, You've dealt with conflict and humanitarian crises in in various parts of the world, and when you look at the situation in Afghanistan today, what are the main challenges facing the Afghan people during this time? Is it fear of the new rulers? Is it a breakdown of security and commerce and essential services? Is it once again, as in the 1980s, mass displacement? Is it access to basic needs like food and medical care? What are the main challenges that ordinary Afghans are encountering today?
1: Overall, the average Afghan—not the whole of Afghans—they feel in a desperate situation. They don't know what to do. They cannot leave the country if they want to. They don't know what is could come. In terms of what Taliban may do or may not do, nobody knows. But there is one thing I like to say. Please. As they say, the cheetah doesn't change its spots. And all this public relations now, ongoing public relations by Taliban, that they have given amnesty, they will not kill people, women are free, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, remains to be seen in real action. Personally speaking, I have my doubts. You cannot change overnight. And also, the question is. Those who are speaking now on behalf of Taliban and they were talking in Doha before. Mm. How much control they have with the Taliban in the field or Taliban commanders? Are they able to bring discipline? I don't know. It remains to be seen and until then, the situation is in a turmoil and all these people are really worried what will happen and let's be frank about one thing speaking about Taliban, one of them who was released from prison in Pakistan at the behest of the United States three three years ago, and also Abdul Ghani when he visited Pakistan, is Abdul Ghani Baradar, who was one one of the co-founders of Taliban, let's be frank about it. And uh, now he has landed in Kandahar with a huge welcome of supporters and then there is talks that he may become the leader of the taliban group in afghanistan and let's be frank about it all these people now who have been called terrorists in the western world they all worked for them before who were these people terrorist groups and let's be frank about it To tell you something from my story, when 9 11 took place, I was in New York at the time. Everybody was talking about Bin Laden, Bin Laden, Bin Laden. I didn't know who he was until I saw the photograph. I said, hell, this guy was sitting next to me at lunch at the home of one of the extremist Mujahideen leaders, General Lutin Haqqani, in Peshawar close to the shore and the question is He was just for me at the time just another Saudi sheikh there were so many of them but he was working on behalf of Americans he was being supported by Americans and yet he turned against Americans afterwards as expected so when you say terrorist depends on whose side you are as they always say once terrorist is the other one's liberation fighter. And all these people, they were supported by them, including Saddam Hussein, who was supported by the Western countries. He was encouraged to attack Iran for eight years. I never forget Mr. Kissinger saying we should continue our support enough to continue the war, but not enough to win the war. I never forget it.
0: So... On, on, on this point, I mean, you were saying earlier how um, you specifically warned um, about the p- consequences of the Western Saudi-Pakistani strategy of of empowering um, uh, the most extreme opposition forces. Um, what could and should have been done differently?
1: Well, there should have supported first and foremost the moderates. Hmm. There was good moderate groups in Afghanistan, who were respected people. But people in Pakistan, the extremists, they didn't want a moderate government. i never forget, I was having lunch one day with the president of Pakistan, Ulam Shah Khan. And I was telling him, I said, please, Mr. President, stop supporting these extremist groups. They will come and haunt you. He said, my brother Benon, I assure you, all we want is a peaceful Islamic Republic next to us. So, Mr. President, the way you're going, you will have an Islamic cemetery next to you. And cemeteries don't recognize borders. The cemeteries will cross the borders in Pakistan, which happened. And now that the Taliban are emboldened with their victory, let's be frank about it, against a superpower in NATO, they feel emboldened. This will also embolden the Haqqani groups in Pakistan. Pakistan has to watch out because they may pay a heavy price for all these things which was going on, which supported in Afghanistan. Hmm. So therefore, it's important for the whole world to stop their differences and try to bring a peaceful solution to persuade everybody To agree on a peaceful solution in Afghanistan to stop their proxy wars. Because this thing now it affects, it will affect the whole region. Let's be frank about Afghanistan, is, has all around its border Muslim countries. There are also extremist groups. So, all these countries, their governments, I'm sure they are concerned what may be the effects in their own countries. Because the victory of Taliban will encourage those also in these other countries to promote themselves. And now that Taliban have taken over Afghanistan, they have released thousands and thousands of prisoners, including Al-Qaeda members and ISIS members. They're not gonna fight these people, no matter what they say. So, so getting
0: getting back again to you earlier referred to afghanistan as as the graveyard of empires as it's widely known um if we look at it from from that perspective the question is could the soviet union and more recently the united states and nato could they have succeeded in afghanistan or was the failure of their military intervention a foregone conclusion in other words Did the soviets and americans fail because of tactical errors they they committed during the war or was the occupation in and of itself a strategic error and and the root of
1: of their ultimate defeat both is correct both are correct but there's one thing i like to say as i said before their intervention was not to try to bring peace in afghanistan they used afghanistan as the terrain from where they carried out their proxy wars against each other. Well, I was going to say the
0: other, the other thing Afghanistan is known for, of course, is as, as the, the location of, of what's called the Great Game in Central Asia.
1: It was. And you know, when the Soviets were there, of course. The Americans wanted, basically, they were trying to make the Soviets pay for what they believed Soviets did to Americans in Vietnam. Let's be frank about it. And they told me we want them to suffer for what they did in Vietnam. They were so happy. There were some Vietnam veterans also there with the Americans. They were so happy every time a soldier, Soviet soldier back in the service, they lost a lot of money, thousands of people in the, of armed forces. Mm-hmm. And as I said, They did not go there to bring peace to Afghanistan. They went there to fight their war against Americans and Americans fought against them. And the Afghan people, what's the name, paid the price. And I always used to tell these people, remember one thing I said, you can rent them, you cannot buy them. Whoever pays most, they will fight on their behalf. Therefore, Afghans were used as mercenaries in their fights against their own enemies foreign powers. So therefore, they didn't really care for Afghanistan, basically. And the Afghan people are the ones who suffer, and they're still suffering, and will suffer for a long time to recover. Millions of Afghans are refugees. Millions of Afghans are disabled. Millions of Afghans are displaced. And who's going to provide them food and medicine or resident? Who? I do hope the humanitarian efforts will continue I do hope the Taliban will try to control themselves and welcome aid from outside for humanitarian aid to their people. And I do hope that humanitarian workers who have been doing a fantastic job under very difficult conditions, including the United Nations, will be allowed to proceed with their help of Afghanistan. And speaking about humanitarian workers, tomorrow is the 18th anniversary, by the way of the bombing of the UN headquarters in Baghdad, where I was present. And I survived by one minute because I was going to have a meeting in my office. The last moment, because I was dying for a coffee, I decided to change the venue of my meeting to my deputy's office, which was only 30 feet away. Just as I walked with my colleagues from my office to his office, the bombing took place. And they say caffeine doesn't have health benefits. Yes, and uh, 22 people. We lost, unfortunately, over 160 people seriously injured. It was horrible seeing my, fr- my friends and colleagues dead in the corridors. There was one poor guy; he had the frame, metal frame of the of the window, gone to his uh, neck. I felt guilty for having survived. It was a horrible sight to see. First they announced that they killed me because they didn't expect me to walk out of my office just one minute before the bombing took place because they had placed the huge truckload of bombs under my office window. It's a, it's a sad day for me tomorrow. I think about all my colleagues who passed gave their life in line of duty every day. And I do hope nothing happens similar to what happened in Baghdad, in Kabul and elsewhere in Afghanistan that all this humanitarian assistance program will continue and the staff working both international and local will continue because while there may be a few hundred international staff in Kabul for the UN, there are more than 18,000 local staff working in Kabul elsewhere in Afghanistan to help the Afghan people and I hope they will be allowed, they will be provided the protection needed and the security needed for them to continue their fantastic work, which Afghans needed desperately. We certainly hope so. Um, and,
0: and once again, I think you've, you've emphasized the importance of continuing with meaningful um, humanitarian efforts in, in such a catastrophic situation. But as, as a final question, I'd, I'd like to return back to um, the question of a political settlement. And you've argued. Um, I think several times today that only an inter-Afghan government can bring peace and security and stability to Afghanistan and its people. Um, we've spoken about the current situation in the country, but that leaves a question. How might such an agreement be achieved? And what is your prognosis uh, for the coming period?
1: Well, at the moment, you hear something encouraging Statements from the Taliban side in their press conference, etc., etc. I do hope they really mean it and they will fulfill the promises they've announced in their press conference, in the recent press conference. And I do hope other organs now, as you mentioned before, Abdullah Abdullah, including Mr. Ekhatya and former President Amit Kazai are discussing the formation of an inclusive interim government in Afghanistan. And I do hope, and I wish them all the success, because unless they come to an agreement for a peaceful solution of their differences, unless the government is all inclusive, including women, for Taliban to demonstrate that they really mean what they said, the women are free, There's no other hope. If they go back to what they did before, God help Afghanistan. At the same time, I do hope that the neighboring countries and the outside world, Americans, the Russians, and all the other neighboring countries and the Western countries, will encourage them to come to an agreement, but not to try to interfere in the discussions being held among the Afghans. It will not work out because the moment I tell you, when I'm supporting you from outside, you are marked already as a foreign agent. Afghans are very suspicious. So they are very good deal makers, let's be frank about it. The moment they know somebody is leaving the government, they start all the tribal leaders, warlords, they make new deals, that's what happened. Look what's happening now after the left. Even before he left, they were making deals already. So they should let Afghans, what they should do is try to encourage them and facilitate their discussions, but not interfere or impose anything on them to do. There's not a way. And I do hope all the governments concerned outside, they coordinate together their recognition of the government. In Kabul, and not try to take advantage over the other one by rushing to quick recognition of the current situation. And on Sivan, on that uh,
0: potentially hopeful note, I'd really like to thank you for taking the time to share your experiences and insights with uh, Connections. Thanks once again. You don't realize,
1: Moin, the number of times I cry when I see it on the news, what's going on suffering I suffer with them they deserve better these people they deserve better. they're wonderful people but they have been used and used and used by foreign powers I'm sorry to say
0: and hopefully um that's something uh that that could be coming uh to an end in the coming period yeah, that's it. thank you once again
1: thank you for giving me the opportunity to express myself thank you by suffering out of Thank you.
0: Thank you. Bye bye.